Welcome to Coffee with Condeva, a series of thought-provoking conversations about complex drug delivery. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Ben Myatt about pressurized metered dose inhaler plume characterizations, specifically around alternative propellants, temperature, and pressure measurements. Hello, I'm your host, John Price, and I've got Ben Myatt with me here today. Ben received his doctorate in mechanical engineering from Loughborough University, specifically around the fundamental study of the primary atomization mechanism and aerosol plume development of the pressurized meter dose inhaler. Currently, Ben works for Condeva Drug Delivery as an advanced product development engineer. Ben recently presented two talks at the DDL Christmas Lecture Series in 2020. Links to those presentations are available in the description for the podcast. Ben, let's start out with a brief overview of what you presented at the DDL Christmas Lecture. We did two presentations at DDL. Uh, One was looking at the pressure and the temperature of various different formulations fired through inhalers, and that was actually within the inhaler itself, in the sump of the inhaler. Uh, The sump is a little void or volume below the can, which contains the the, the formulation, um, and just before the orifice that the the plume exits through that the patient would actually see if they look inside the mouthpiece. So we did pressure and temperature measurements inside the sump, and the second one was around temperature measurements of those plumes when they're fired into an anatomical mouth-throat. An anatomical mouth-throat is a a model, in our case, that we use for for testing in the lab, uh, that's a, a representative model of human airways so it's got an oral cavity uh, and then into this kind of laryngopharynx and the uh, region of the actual throat itself yeah and there is a picture of it in in uh, your presentation it you know looks like a plastic throat laying on your your workbench yeah so it's 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 based on it's based on a, a real human's throat so it's an mri image that was taken of a human throat and has been then turned into this throat geometry that we can use in the lab. Um, it's widely used by, it's a freely available and widely used uh, geometry. What we've done is we've taken that geometry and instrumented it with thermocouples. So we've added little holes into it, kind of created an outer shell from that kind of internal skin geometry or the, the skin of it. We've 3D printed it ourselves and then done the measurements. Okay. Um, so maybe help me just uh, get a better understanding of kind of maybe the basic components of these PMDIs, you know, your, your standard inhaler. I know they're not all the same. There There's certainly, you know, other types of inhalers out there, dry powdered inhalers. And, and what we're specifically talking about here are the, the PMDIs. So start, for starters, at the heart of the inhaler, we have what we call the can closure system. That consists of the canister, uh, which holds, it's, it's the reservoir, which holds the formulation, uh, and a metering valve, which um, performs the function of every time you depress this can, it meters out a very precise, um, a small volume of liquid, which is the, the dose that you then receive. Inside that can uh, and the, the valve uh, is the, the formulation that consists of the liquefied propellant, gas, um, at pressure, and also the active pharmaceutical ingredient. We call it the API or the drug. Sometimes the API is suspended in that propellant, and sometimes it's dissolved in a co-solvent. Quite often it's ethanol, uh, and that's contained in the the propellant in a solution. So kind of got those two different formulation systems. And then 
surrounding the whole of that container closure system and surrounding that canister is your plastic actuator body. That's generally the colourful bit. As you depress your can and uh, the metering valve emits your dose, it kind of the dose travels through the little white plastic stem uh, or sometimes a metal stem into the actuator body through a series of passages and then out for the final orifice, the exit hole, that when you look into the mouthpiece, you'll see a little black dot generally, and that's the orifice that the, the, the spray plume comes out of. So you've got a can inside a plastic actuator. Sometimes we have some additional components. Um, there'll be a dose counter, for instance, in there, and that or an indicator, and that will either tell you kind of roughly how many doses you've got inside that device if it's an indicator, or exactly how many device, doses you've got inside the device if it's a dose counter. Okay, okay. That's, uh, yeah, that's helpful. I can get a picture in my mind. Um, why is, like, your your papers at, at DDL talk, you know, are really on, on pressure and temperature. Why are the, why are pressure and temperature of propellants so vital um, for proper PMDI delivery? What What is it about the, the pressure and temperature that begs to be measured in, in a way that you're doing? So the pressure particularly is the driving force behind atomization. There's kind of two schools of thought about how uh, droplets are actually made by an inhaler. Um, that's an air blast type atomization or it's a flash type atomization. And it's probably a hybrid of both of those, the, the, the actual mechanism by which droplets are produced. Pressure drives both of those mechanisms though. Um, that's either pressure to force your liquid and vapor formulation out of the inhaler or it's the pressure basically because you're holding that gas at a, um, a higher pressure because of your ambient temperature um, and that when you release it, uh, it kind of it explodes essentially. It flash boils quite rapidly and violently to produce these small droplets. So realistically, the higher the pressure, the, the finer the droplets that you, you kind of produce from your device. It's the driving force behind the atomization. It also influences the speed at which the plume comes out. The higher the pressure, the faster the plume normally as well. But obviously that's also kind of a function of the device hardware. So that's kind of the, the final exit orifice diameter of your PMDI. And there's some other factors that also in, in, uh, influence the, the kind of droplet sizes as well. That's kind of surface tension, viscosity of the formulation. And that kind of, you know, it is, is a result of the the propellant that you choose, and also if there's other excipients or co-solvents or the chemicals that we've added in to that particular formulation to, to help make that final product. But really, it's the pressure that drives the atomization process. And the temperature is, is kind of a, a fundamental property of the propellant that you, um, you kind of, they go hand in hand, the pressure and the temperature. And it, you know, the temperature is around the boiling point. And that's kind of the other, other property that we talk about, the boiling point of this, um, this liquefied gas. And they're generally quite cold. You know, they're below zero degrees centigrade. Okay, okay. So how do APIs and propellants kind of coexist? Um, do they express themselves differently in the activation plume? You know, you've got, you're, you're talking about kind of this liquefied gas you you know you've got solvents sometimes these these co-solvents or do they they float around in there is that why i have to shake it up is it just the the drug is you know generally well dispersed within that canister you know what you know each dose is like here's a little bit of the api here's here's a little bit of propellant and does the mixing there or, you know just some how's how's that mechanism work within the pmdi yeah so we have two different types of formulation uh kind of paradigms, if you like. 
One would be a solution formulation, and that's where we have the ethanol. Um, and the, the drug or the API is dissolved in that ethanol. Um, and that ethanol is kind of makes up a percentage of the dose that you'd receive, and the remainder would be your propellant. Um, so every time you, you depress the can, you get like a, you get a, a homogeneous solution that is dispensed through the valve and then out into the, the atmosphere. Suspensions are the other paradigm, and they are physically drug crystals or drug particles that are suspended, hence the name, uh, in the propellant. Pretty much, you know, for, for both cases, you want to shake your inhaler and make sure that everything is well mixed. But that's really, really important for the suspension formulations because you need to make sure that the, the drug that's um, in that propellant is all homogeneously mixed and is, is well distributed and suspended. And so next time you press the, the, the can down and, and take your dose, when you release the, inhale, the, the canister, that's actually when it takes the next dose into the metering chamber. So it's at the end of that. The, the spray event that you're preparing your inhaler for the next time you're going to use it. So if you haven't well mixed the inhaler, uh, the formulation inside the inhaler, then you might get inconsistent dosing next time you use it. That's why shaking is so important. Okay. Um, so that that kind of leads me to my, my next question, which is, you know, again, some of these might be, <laughs> you know, me coming from, from, from my viewpoint, but, you know, I shake up my inhaler and I've always wondered, you know, what is that shaking up in there? You know, it, it seems like water, but, you know, now that I'm, I'm in the industry, I know that's not all API in there, but I, I guess that shaking is is the the liquefied propellant is, is what I'm hearing because I'm like, well, liquid's not falling, you know, come shooting out of here. It's pretty much just the, that vapor and gas. Um, so I've always kind of wondered when I was shaking that. Is that what I'm, I'm feeling when I shake that canister? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that liquefied um, propellant gas with the API and any other co-solvents in it. When we have a suspension formulation, one of the other factors that's um, at play uh, around this kind of shaking action um, is around how the API kind of behaves. And, and that kind of is around its morphology. So the, the, the drug particle size, uh, you know, depending on what the drug is, we might have quite a small particle size. It might be quite a large particle size. Is it very dense? Is it heavy? You could particle engineer. So you can actually create drug particles that are um, hollow and that they're very light. So they might be big, but actually they have quite a low mass. And so they have like an aerodynamic particle size. that's quite small, an equivalent particle size, but one that's, related to the aerodynamics of the, of the situation. And there's also about the powder loading, the amount of drug that we put in there as well. So if you've got a lot of powder, you want to make sure it's dispersed. That's why you shake it. So, you know, I know there's different ways to, to basically put this formulation into the canister. And, you know, I've, I've heard pressure filling and cold filling. Why would one person cold fill or pressure fill? Are there benefits or is it strictly to do with the API? Why, why would you choose one over the other? So there's kind of the two ways that you've just mentioned, uh, John, that's cold filling and pressure filling. Cold filling is kind of, as, it, as you've, you've identified, it's a cold process. It is a process where we, we take a, a vessel, uh, we chill it down to below the boiling point of the propellant, and we, we add that propellant in so it stays in its liquid state. It's everything is at that cold state. And we add in the drug or the API. We mix it all up quite, you know, really thoroughly. And then we essentially decant it under gravity. So it's like a little tap, essentially an automated process to decant the known amount or the, the particular amount into each little canister. Uh, we then take the canister, put a valve on top of it, and we crimp it. And that then gives you a, 
um, the, the final can, which is then warmed up to kind of our ambient temperature, and that's the point at which this, this liquefied gas, um, you know, takes on a pressure because it's a, a warmer temperature. Yep. Since it's in a sealed environment, it went in cold, but now you've sealed it, and as it warms up, it creates that pressure in the... Okay, that that makes sense. So with pressure filling, I, why would you do a like a pressure fill type? So pressure filling uh, basically consists of taking a can, you put the valve straight on top of it, you crimp it, and then you fill the formulation through the top through the valve. So you you fill it under pressure. That's why you have to. That's why the pressure pressure name comes from. Sometimes some of the non volatiles, or as we call them, or the, the excipients, could be added into the can in advance. And then the valve is crimped on top, and then you fill the propellant in. Um, but most, most normally, the, the, the formulation is made up in a vessel and is then inject, injected into the can at pressure. The differences are kind of based on what manufacturing capability a given company might have. Uh, there's pros and cons to both. At pressure filling, you, you're operating at ambient temperatures, but you have to have highly pressurated equipment because the pressures are involved uh, you know, are higher. And pressure, pressure filling could be advantageous for materials that, or, or APIs that are temperature sensitive because you don't have to undergo this cold um, chilling process. However, cold filling, disadvantage that you have to use energy to obviously chill that vessel down, but your advantage is you're not operating at such a high pressure, not pressure at all. Um, one of the advantages for cold filling would be that you perhaps can fill high powder loading formulations. So formulations that have a, a, a lot of drug in them, uh, a high powder loading, we call them. Um, you could fill them perhaps a little easier, um, more consistently or better than, than pressure filled uh, formulations. And that's just due to the fact that you're trying to f- squeeze so much drug backwards through the valve, essentially. Uh, if you're pressure filling it, whereas cold filling, obviously, you're pouring into the top of the open can and then putting the valve on afterwards. It, it reminds me this isn't the the first time that that we've we've gone through this. So, if I'm remembering correctly, these inhalers PMDIs used to be filled with CFCs. We we transitioned away from CFCs to HFAs, and I guess I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of of moving. And I, I know you're you know, you're a young man. <laughs> this may predate you, but I'm, I'm guessing you've you've at least studied about the the transition before. So, if you talk to me a little bit about the transition from CFCs to HFAs, yeah. So, so CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons um, were the norm for um, their refrigerants. Uh, we sometimes you call them F gases um, or propellant gases in our case. Uh, really widely used. Um, and in the 1980s, late 80s, there was research um, that showed that they, these gases and the release of these gases into the atmosphere, particularly the stratosphere, um, caused ozone depletion. And so the Montreal Protocol was signed. And as a result of that, there was a, an agreement to phase out the use of CFCs. And HFAs, hydrofluoroalkanes, were the, the, the kind of chosen um, alternative propellant gases at that time. And so a lot of work went in, in the early 90s, uh, early mid-90s through to even the 2000s to, to, to develop products that used HFAs instead of CFCs. And obviously there are differences in properties between the CFC propellant gases and the HFA propellant gases. And that led to some differences in the product performance. The kind of two different ways you could go about that process. One was to 
try and make an exact match of the 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 products so that your patient saw no difference and that was essentially making an equivalent product when you just switched out the gas the other one was to make use of the fact that hfa gases actually were kind of higher pressure gases and so you could actually make more efficient products and so there was a step change in in efficiency of some products and you know regulatory pathways of, of getting products approved kind of you know created those two different avenues for product development at that time Okay, so it's a similar type transition going on. And so today, the the kind of the the global focus is around um, being green and carbon footprints. Um, and our, our current HFA propellants uh, don't have a great global warming potential, uh, and that's the 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 kind of relative impact to the environment uh, of C, the, compared to CO two. Recently, there was an amendment to the Montreal Protocol, and it's called the Kigali Amendment which is to phase down the use of our current HFA propellants um, and with a view to replacing them with lower global warming potential propellants. So we could say that we are kind of going through a similar development in the industry that we did when we went from CFCs to HFAs, and it's the next generation of propellants now. Uh, There is another HFA, uh, 152, and there's also HFO, which is a hydrofluoroolefin. Uh, one, two, three, four, and these are being looked at by various players in the industry as alternatives to our current propellants. But of course, we don't know much about using those propellants in inhalers yet. That work hasn't been done, so this is why we're starting to do this work now. That's great. That kind of brings us back to the some of the work you you've been doing. Because if we we look at your presentations from there, you you're, you're not just modeling a propellant through the through these models but you're you're actually testing a variety of different propellants is that correct yes yeah so we we've been doing some work with with these new two candidate propellants and comparing them against our current uh, two propellants the, the de rigueur in industry yeah to try and understand more about the the differences and the similarities between you know the new and the current propellants um you know and there's a number of different ways we can do that testing there's, there's the kind of standard pharma testing that we do, and there's also some other fundamental tests that we can do to understand more about the nature of, of these PMDI propellant systems, so the, the, these, these new propellants in a PMDI. How does it behave? Um, you know, and that's going to help steer development of, of new products because when we have that fundamental knowledge about how these new propellants behave, we can make more informed decisions during our product development. We can hopefully you know, speed that process up. We can um, get to a clinic quicker because we've got that background knowledge. And, and that couples with the knowledge that we have you know, from our kind of day-to-day process of developing new PMDI products. Uh, you know, bring our background knowledge with our kind of research into these new propellants together, and it puts us in a good, good position. Okay, so so from a customer standpoint, they, you know, we're we're basically, you know, doing some of the legwork um, that that's going to have to be done, and and this is the the beginning stages of, of of some of that testing that that we're trying to get ahead of here, um, so we can be ready for our customers and 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 continue to you know produce these medicines for for the patient. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's trying to identify some of the issues that we might face later in the development process, but up front. So with this fundamental knowledge that we, we will have, we'll kind of, you know, be better equipped to develop products, um, you know, with a better better chance of success. 
and it, and it, it steer our R and D work in the future as well as to kind of you know we know the we know the areas that we we'll need to work in um, for a, for a given product opportunity. So so what exactly is it that you're looking for in a new propellant? So. Ideally, we'd like a propellant that has similar properties to the ones we currently use because that will make the switching process um, or adopting these new propellants in, in new products easier. The, some of the key parameters, I guess, if you want to you know, label them, would be there's pressure uh, of the, the vapor pressure of the, of the gas or the propellant. There's the boiling point, uh, the temperature at which it boils. Uh, there's the density. And they're kind of some of the big key ones, uh, some of the big key parameters that we want to, would like to try and, uh, you know, keep similar. Um, there's phys- physico-chemical properties, we call them, and, and even the thermodynamic properties, we'd all like them to be similar. Um, because any differences are going to mean that we have to re-engineer the device or the formulation to kind of account for them. And to try and, you know, if we want to try and bring it back to a kind of very similar product to what we may have developed in the past, uh, going forwards, we kind of have to make those um, those changes to to account for for any differences in the propellant. This is kind of why it's so you know important to have something that's similar in the first place. At the end of the day, the biggest thing we're trying to do here is trying to get drug into a lung of a patient. Um, and so, you know, I talked earlier on about the temperature and the pressure of that propellant being really important into you know about the atomization process. Well, that atomization is generating droplets that are, are, are going to convey the, the API or the drug into a, p- a person's lung. Um, and so obviously, you know, similarity in pressure and temperature are, are, are important there um, because at the end of the day, we're trying to make a product that, you know, still gets drug into the lung for the patient. Alternatively, we could harness some of the advantages of these new propellants to try and improve the efficiency of uh, the, the, the inhaler or the PMDI in the future. Um, and that's one of the areas of my main focus. Additionally, uh, the other difference we might find is around chemical stability and manufacturability of the product. So we've still got to be able to make a product, have it with a usable shelf life uh, without issues of any degradation of either safety or performance. So in, in your, your paper, in this specifically around the model that was used, you talked to me a little bit about the, this model. Um, you know, why is how does this help really understand these these temperature and pressure things you know i know you know it's a it's a model of of the throat but what i guess what did you do specifically within the model to to help measure these these differences in temperature and pressure so in in our lab testing that's this the routine lab testing that we do and, and that other companies do we use throats throat models or throats to to take the, the spray that we generate from an inhaler and into our test equipment. They're the interface, if you like, of the test equipment. And it's become much more widely used now in industry that um, we use anatomical throats. They're more realistic to an anatomical human geometry. And so we get closer results to those that we would see um, in, in vitro in the lab against in vivo in a clinic. Some work was done in the 2000s uh, by the, they were called the OPC Consortium, which is a consortium of a, a, few, a few different um, pharma players. And they did MRI scans of humans, I think around 20 different humans. They did MRI scans of humans. Those scans de- have been developed into test apparatus. And there's a medium, um, a small and a large geometry that are um, available to industry for purchase and, and use in testing. We've taken the medium throat geometry 
and developed our own kind of we've in-house designed and produced and manufactured um, an instrumented version of this, which includes small holes that we've then passed thermocouples into the the oral cavity and the throat region, so that when we fire an inhaler into the the throat geometry, we can measure the temperature of that plume and we can track it through the the patient's kind of oral cavity and into the throat and then out of the device. And that was 3D printed with our our own capability in-house. And the aim, obviously, is to measure this, what the patient might feel, what the patient might experience by taking these products. Just curious, when that when the plume comes out of the end of the the inhaler, how fast is it actually moving? So we're we're looking at measurements at the mouthpiece exit of um, twenty to thirty meters a second, uh, depending on the exact configuration of the device um, and the propellant that we've used, and and that's kind of roughly forty to fifty, maybe even sixty miles an hour, to give you some idea. Uh, well, it's really interesting because um, we found that during the CFC to HFA transition. My mentor, uh, uh, one of our company scientists, uh, Steve Stein, did a lot of work around, uh, he also measured uh, temperature and also the force of CFC and then HFA spray plumes. And they found that the CFC plumes, um, they they called it the the cold freon effect, it was was found. And that was basically, it was a really uh, cold, forceful blast of propellant and liquid that impacted in the, the kind of the mouth and the throat. And it, had to, it kind of there's two things that happened. It, it kind of could could cause a patient to stop inhaling their medication properly, so it meant that they they didn't get any a proper dose. But then when we moved to C, to HFA transition plumes, we moved to HFA plumes, they were much warmer. Um, and if we transition to new propellants, what will that look like? Okay, great. Yeah. So around that temperature piece, I, you know, I guess I'm I was surprised to to see how low the temperatures get you know if, if you know i'm guessing it's a very short <laughs> phenomenon so well it well it might get close to freezing it, it's very the time frame so short that yeah i can feel a little a little bit of a drop of temperature but you know since the rest of my mouth is 98 degrees um you know it quickly warms up as it makes its way is that kind of what what happens in in the plume and then that kind of leads me to to wonder, you know, when you're measuring these, what's kind of the fidelity of that measurement? You know, what are the the time increments? You know, is it, you know, it's a, thinking of it like video would be, you know, how many frames per second, but, you know, how many measurements are we kind of taking per second? Is that is that kind of a way to measure that resolution? Is that... The fidelity of the measurements, we, we, we data log at um, one kilohertz, so that's every millisecond. The reaction time of the thermocouples, well, we've chosen the, the kind of the finest thermocouples that we can reasonably get into this, um, into this model. So they are very fast response, but they have a, they have a time lag, you know, um, that's at the order of, you know, a few milliseconds to kind of react to the temperature, the changes around them. Um, and that's, you know, yeah, pretty fast for, for, for thermocouples. Yes, the time, cha- the time duration over which um, the patient feels this temperature is, is, is very small. It's very short. Yes, that's true. Uh, the temperatures that the plume gets down to, yes, very cold. Also, good point. Uh, and again, we, you know that's been measured and that's been seen um, for for, in, for inhalers. Uh, 
that kind of leads me to the the question about the tongue kind of the does that affect the temperature you know and is that part of the modeling um that's taking place or again is that kind of a negligible effect and and can be ignored for the purpose of the model in, in measuring temperatures the tongue itself is the, is is an interesting point and that's it's an important point as well because when you look at someone's mouth or when you look at them the, the front of their face and into their mouth the first thing you see when they open their mouth is their tongue and it's the first thing that is in line of sight for an inhaler when you actuate your your inhaler um and so yeah we we find, we find that the temp, we thought the temp, the temperature of the tongue is quite an important um place to to make this measurement because it's where the the, the patient first can interact with the plume and we found that for some of the propellants um, the temperature was really low, but for others, it, it wasn't so low. So, yeah, the shape and the location of the tongue um, are very representative because they come from that, that data from the human, uh, the, the, the MRI scans of humans. The, there are some differences. You know, we're talking of a, a throat model or throat um, that is 3D printed as opposed to, um, you know, human tissue. Uh, and so, you know, that will have an impact in the measurements we make. However, the biggest importance with these measurements is really about the plume temperature and it's the effect that the plume then has on, on the, the oral cavity of the throat. Um, and so when we change the propellant, if that causes, you know, significant differences in what the patient might feel, and that's the, the new propellants might, if they're significantly different to the old propellants, then that might have the same kind of cold freon effect that was seen when we went from CFCs to HFAs, although it might be in reverse. You know, this is all about trying to understand, are, are there going to be differences for the patient? And so even though this is a model, um, you know, a plastic model and not human tissue, I'm guessing since we've measured and benchmarked, um, you know, previous temperatures and plumes coming through, really what we're trying to do, and we know those work in human tissues, the the assumption made is that they will, you know, if we can match this in, in the lab, then once we move into to humans, the, the effect should be similar. You know, of course, all this is, you know, prone to testing and, and why testing is so important as we move through there. So another question around the model is, you know, how is the dose actually delivered? Do, you know, is the the inhaler like stuck into the mouth? Is there a, a vacuum draw at the end of the thing? Does the model have to, you know, is it actually held vertically? So in, in case there's effect from gravity or... We we do draw through an airflow. We use 30 liters a minute, which is pretty standard. Um, it's kind of, we call it compendial pharmaceutical testing. Um, it's what we use for other, other types of pharma measurements. So it's, it's comparable in that respect. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's a wide range of human inhalation maneuvers. So we just, we're going for a, kind of keep it a little bit more simple, a standard constant flow rate. How do we fire it in the lab? Well, yes, we have an adapter that goes on the front of this, um, this throat model. Uh, and that's kind of representative of where your lips and your teeth would be, for instance. And in the center of that is um, a hole that the, our inhaler, test inhaler, slots straight into. And then I set the data logger running. I have the airflow on constant, and then I, I depress the, the inhaler myself in a press, press and breathe fashion, the same way you take your inhaler, um, although I'm firing it into the device and not into my own mouth. You know, really the, the findings from from this research that you've done, what what is, you know, we've talked a little bit about the impact and, and really what you're trying to model, but what's the ultimate hope? What are the findings that come out of 
this study that you've done? And, and then maybe after that, what are some of the next steps? You know, what do we, where do we go from here? Yeah, so some of this work is, is fairly early stages. Um, and, you know, the work that we've done has established a, a broad understanding. Um, and the work that we've done so far has been with placebo propellants. So that is just the propellant in the inhaler on its own. No drug, no other co-solvents. So we want to, for starters, you know, we've, we've done that work and we then want to now start comparing it against the, the routine pharma testing. So that's the, the kind of cascade impactor testing that we do in the lab um, to determine our particle size distributions. Um, and then when we compare, you know, we want to compare against current and new potential products. So the new formulations, new propellants in those formulations, how do they perform compared to the, um, the, the, the current products that we have with the older current propellants? Um, and then kind of tie that in with the, the temperature measurements and the sump pressure temperature measurements that we also talked about. I want to try and tie all the, bring this story together, paint a big picture. You know, going forwards, we'll do more work with specific formulations. So I start to add more of our, our co-solvents or excipients and drugs in um, to, you know, to, to investigate the impact of actually the drug in that formulation as well. Um, and we'll also go on to do further work to investigate how changing the hardware. Um, so that might be changing the valve volume how much um, is, each, is in each shot, how much the, you know, the amount of liquid that's in each shot. Uh, we might change actuator orifice size. So we might have a smaller hole uh, to try and make a finer plume. We might have a larger hole that makes a, a, a less uh, fine or a coarser plume. Uh, so that's kind of some of the, the work we'll be doing going forwards. Yeah, just one last question here for you, Ben. Um, hoping you can maybe comment on the use of PMDI inhalers to treat systemic issues versus just always respiratory issues. So apart from the changes that are going on in the industry at the moment, looking at new propellants um, and efforts to reduce the carbon footprint of inhalers, I think one of my designs is to, and our designs at Kindeavor is in R&D is really to push the envelope of, of, of what a PMDI can achieve, the performance that we can achieve with it. Uh, and what it might be used for, and you know what's possible. Um, that might be looking into larger molecules, um, systemic delivery for for non asthma, non COPD treatments. Uh, and an example of that is the the recent announcement um, of uh, that Kindeavor has partnered with Bol Pharma um, to investigate feasibility of delivery of inhale, inhaled cannabinoids. We want to know can we push the boundaries to deliver more drug material more efficiently uh, to more people and for the treatment of more conditions. Ben, I really appreciate your time here today and for enlightening us all about PMDIs. I look forward to hearing from you again soon as you develop more new data. No problem. Good to talk to you, John. Thank you. To that point, I should mention that you will be presenting some of that new data at the upcoming Respiratory Drug Delivery Conference in May. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Kandeva a series of thought-provoking conversations about complex drug delivery.